Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today we welcome Tom Willie. Tom, along with his wife Dinesse, operated T&D Willie Farms from 1981 until 2016. A 75-acre certified organic farm in Madera, California, they were growing a wide array of Mediterranean vegetables the year round. Tom says, we've got to figure out how to live on agriculture without destroying the natural systems that support its productivity. He goes on to say that organic is all about living biology and the diversity of biology and all of the living organisms in your soil. Monty and Tom have a great conversation about all these things and so much more. So let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. We're glad to be joined today in studio by a friend of mine and farmer from California, Tom Willie. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. I'm newly introduced to this part of the world and it's fascination for me to be here and be on your farm today yeah well we've we've had some fun if you're watching on youtube you can see we've got our farm clothes on we've been out it's a little hot we're recording this may 31 so a little heat wave and checking some things out we've been in the fields we've been in the pastures we've got more to do this afternoon but uh, yeah it's uh we've had some fun discussions driving down the road and we're going to try and jam all this that we can into an hour sure Otherwise, you know, people will have to make two or three versions of this, you know, and they'll well, be to if, be continued, right? If you feed me well tonight, I might come back again. Oh, thank you for the warning. <laughs> so uh, returning the favor here, Tom uh, has invited me uh, once or twice to be on his uh, uh, radio show that he does in Fresno called Down on the Farm. It's a monthly uh, radio show. But um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your history. Um you know, how you, how you got started in farming and what it grew into just, just your story for everyone to, to hear what you've done through the years and then how that grew into your own radio show too. Well, I grew up in a suburb outside of Los Angeles, actually uh, a couple blocks down the street from the San Gabriel mission, where it turns out the first agriculture in California occurred hmm. because uniquely the, the, the native uh, Americans in California, even though it was the most densely populated part of the country when there was only 3 million uh, Indians living in what would eventually become the United States, mm -hmm. um, even though 300,000 of those people lived in California, they didn't do agriculture. They were a lot more intelligent than we were. But that environment was so generous that they didn't need to plant seeds or uh, swing a hoe. And But when the Spanish missionaries arrived and started up the, the the San Gabriel Mission, which they called the Queen of the Missions, was the first place that they began agriculture in California hmm. and enslaved the Indians to help them. But anyhow, uh, my yes. family lived down the street, and I like to, well, I don't like to say, but I like to say my family was black thumbs. They couldn't even grow a house plant. And the only thing that I fell in love with in our backyard was a, was a plum tree. Uh, a plum tree that Luther Burbank had uh, developed or maybe stolen from Japan. And uh, I used to climb that tree and shine plums on my shirt and enjoy the heck out of them. So anyhow, 
uh, 20 years later, I was a college student, went down to Mexico, spent two summers in Mexico in small farming towns. And I used to go out and walk behind farmers and out to their fields and pretend like I was helping them. And uh, so I probably got the seed of interest in agriculture at that point, but I went on to get a degree in sociology and work in the prison and paroles business. Well, that was giving me a pretty sour outlook on the human race after a few years. And I was uh, wound up on the north coast of California, Mendocino County in the fall, late summer, early fall, unemployed. And I went out and picked grapes, wine grapes on some of the small estates in that area. And that kind of romanced me. And after a year or so, I invited my best friend to head down to Fresno with me where they had a school of viticulture, which is where you learn to grow grapes. And a school of enology is where you learn to grow, make wine. So he and I were going to be the next Ernest and Julio Gallo. Okay. And so we studied viticulture and enology. But when I got out of viticulture school, the grape business was kind of in a depression or a recession. So those jobs were hard to find. So the first job I got was on a 10,000-acre row crop farm uh, just south of Merced, uh, the Newhall Land and Farming Company, and I learned to grow processing tomatoes there. And a uh, couple of puddle jumps from there to other farms, eventually worked my way uh, to the west side of the San Joaquin Valley and then back to the east side. Um, and uh, Dinesh and I decided to start our own farm in 1980 at the end of 1980. And um, we, T&D Willie Farms existed for 35 years and uh, we never lost money farming. And uh, we were very blessed because we were in a perfectly historical period of time, which was both the birth of the direct marketing movement or the, or the, the, the renaissance of farmers markets in California that uh, was the response, uh, which was caused by the first uh, governorship of Jerry Brown, when he was called Governor Moonbeam. So we did farmer's markets for 20 years in Los Angeles area where I grew up. And then we did a CSA. And then in uh, we transitioned after about five years of farming to organic, organic production. And uh, that was the birth of the modern organic movement at that time. And it was very good to us. It was very good to a lot of family, family scale and modest sized farmers and goofballs like us who just came out of the cities and said, we're going to farm, you know, <laughs> and uh, it worked for us. And and we retired about five, six years ago. And uh, we were very, we feel very blessed. We wound up in Madeira. Finally, we've, we leased three different farms in different locations around and about Fresno, and then wound up eventually moving to Madeira County where I met you where we actually purchased uh, an 80-acre farm and finished the last 20 of our years farming there. And, uh, yeah, so a great adventure. Uh, well, that's incredible. And, you know, a lot of people talk about when you start in farming, you have to have family that's been farming or you have to have something given to you to start. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't happen for you. No, you know, that's a plus and a minus. Yeah, and do you think that possibility is still there today? Of what? being able to start from scratch. I think it's always a possibility. I think it's, it's always not good. a high probability that you're going to survive or succeed. Isn't that true it's for any small business? A possibility. Yeah. Because I think that maybe the, after 10 years, only about two small, two out of 10 survive over a 10 year period of any kind. Mm -hmm. But the, 
it's possible mm -hmm. but so talk about your your transition to organic you know mm -hmm. you had five years of more conventional farming then you decided to go to organic was was organic even a standard then was it was it it was just a, becoming a standard it was more of basically you were telling your farming practices mm -hmm. to the public of what you were mm -hmm. doing but it wasn't there wasn't usda organic there was maybe smaller yeah uh certifying groups within yeah, the state yeah. that uh, was doing it why why did you transition and, and what did that mean yeah so i studied agriculture at fresno state mm -hmm. you know and i got a job on a ten thousand acre conventional farm mm -hmm. and another thousand acre farm and and I really was not questioning the conventional practices, mm -hmm. you know, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, the whole bit. Um, and even started our own farm, you know, on 20 acres without really questioning that, that system. But it just began to creep into my mind little by little that we were having to apply more of those inputs every year to attempt to reproduce the results of the previous year that, and I, I got started getting the feeling that this system, this thing is backpedaling. This is going backwards. And um, at the time, the Rodale uh, organization started publishing a magazine they called The New Farm. And it was not aimed at home gardeners like their main magazine was, but it was aimed at farmers starting to make a transition to... Uh, to, or, you know, to chemical free farming, you know, to biologically intensive farming. Mm -hmm. And it was like being reborn, reading, reading these articles in this paper about these farms that, man, these guys were farming without chemicals. They were using compost. They were using, you know, this, that, and the other thing, um, and not chemicals. <laughs> I mean, I, it was like a baptism, right? So I actually got a hold of the editor of this new farm magazine because in Fresno, they had just started an equipment show, you know, where all the farmers show up. And I said, look, send me a bunch of your back issues. I'm going to rent a booth at the Fresno farm show, and I'm going to convert all my neighbors and friends too to this organic thing. So I took all those magazines down there, spread them all out. And all these farmers came by and nobody picked up nothing. And the only thing I accomplished in that effort was that I met the five other people in the San Joaquin Valley who were organic farmers. And oh. so I started creating a little community, but I hauled all those magazines back home. They stayed up in the rafters of our garage for about 10 years until we decided we better throw these things away. <laughs> so from that seed, we kind of started creating community around uh, organic farming and no, the, the whole certification deal at that time was private. It was started by the California Certified Organic Farmers, which started in 1973. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary no, this year, awesome. right now. And it was really started uh, by the generosity of Robert Rodale from the Rodale Institute, who was kind of inspired it and I think gave him some money originally to get it going. And so it was completely private for five, six years until uh, we got uh, the state of California to adopt the first organic law, I think in 1979. I think that was revised then in 1991. And then the community made a big decision to hand the thing off to the federal government and the USDA and uh, the National Organic Program 
went into effect in 2002. So it was a whole progressive thing. And uh, uh, I was somewhat involved in that over over the years. And uh, I think it's really questionable now whether it was a good idea to hand it off to the USDA, um, positives and negatives. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see exactly where that balance is. <laughs> <laughs> so it made organic a big deal, you know, all of a sudden. I mean, 15% of the whole fruit and vegetable market in the united states is now certified organic mm -hmm. and uh so that maybe wouldn't have been possible without the usda but um but there's negatives to that too you know so yeah, well but, we're going to dive into those a little bit but you know one of the things we were talking about in the truck on the way here was um just the need for how to grow things uh, organically let alone having yeah. the certification but just when you were starting out and probably uh, with these other farmers you found in the san joaquin valley knowing how to grow crops organically was a oh, huge challenge. We were absolutely ignorant. It? I had a friend that had chicken houses next door to him. And you know that they raised chickens on about six inches deep of wood shavings, right? Mm -hmm. Or rice hulls. Mm -hmm. And so he had his neighbor scrape all of that out. And he put it six inches deep in his orchard. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, he was nitrogen deficient for for about five years after that, you know, because the carbon to nitrogen balance mm -hmm. was totally out of whack. I mean, I had the city of Fresno bring all of the leaves that they scraped out of the gutters on the streets out to my farm. And I was going, well, it's going to be compost, right? You know, and I mean, there was baby dolls in there. There was palm trees growing out of it. There was, you know, <laughs> tires. Oh, my Lord. I even had a guy bring truckloads and truckloads of walnut hills up to my farm one time. Mm -hmm. I had a whole row of those things, maybe a quarter of a mile. And fortunately, I never put them on my land because I didn't realize that this stuff is toxic. You know, They'd that's, like a, that's like a herbicide. Right. And. Uh, this guy would, thought he had cut a fat hog because he get, he got rid of these things to some dumb guy who thought it would be organic fertilizer, you know. So, man, I'm telling you, we were so ignorant. I mean, we had guardian angels to, to survive. The, but, but we came together as a community and we mm -hmm. shared our successes and we shared our failures. Mm -hmm. And we little by little pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps because nobody else would help us. Our neighbors thought we were idiots. They laughed at us. Mm -hmm. The universities, the same thing. In fact, my wife is angry today at this one farm advisor in Fresno County who, when people demanded that he show them an organic farm, he would bring them to organic, our farm, okay? But as soon as they got there, he would say, okay, here's your organic farm. It doesn't work, but here it is if you want to look at it. And this guy would go to farming conferences wearing a badge on his shirt called Organic Farm Advisor, just to, just to mock us, just to make fun of us. Anyhow, it's not that way now, but in the early days, it was hard to grow it and easy to sell it. Now it's easy to grow it and hard to sell it because <laughs> the tables have turned. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, something I know you've become really involved with over time's Eco Farm Conference. Ecological Farming Conference. That was yeah. kind of our and, yeah. uh, organic extension, extension like service. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, the, the USDA extension service was not interested in helping us. And so we had to help ourselves. And that was the community where we came together every year for three, four days and and had a powwow and taught each other how to farm <laughs> and how not to farm. <laughs> exactly. 
And it's a great conference if you ever get a chance to go to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's attended I've by been, about 1,500 people every year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and a it's great a beautiful too. place. And it's Sillamore Conference Grounds, which is right on right on the, the Pacific right on Ocean. The, in, Monterey Bay there. Yeah. Monterey. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful, Pretty rough. beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough place to spend. So tell days. us about your role in, with that and, and how you're, you're keeping that mentorship or that extension aspect uh, vibrant for, for farmers. Yeah. I, you know, many years ago, I was a few years on the board of directors of that organization, the Ecological Farming Association. And then more recently, since I retired, I have joined the planning committee of the conference itself, for the, what we call an EcoFarm conference. Um, as I mentioned, 45 years ago, which when it was initiated, that event, it was really the only place that you could get reliable information about how to farm organically. So it was basically a conference where you would attend a whole bunch of workshops on weeds and fertility and varieties and all this sort of things. And But now, you know, 40 years later, it's kind of morphing into something different uh, because we're handing this off to another generation now, or we're attempting to. All the people of my age, the originators kind of are going to seed and getting long in the tooth. And so we're looking for younger people to hand it off to. Well, the younger people are kind of interested in a different set of things. They're interested in urban agriculture. They're interested in food uh, sovereignty and equity issues around agriculture because you know all the farmland in America is owned by 99.9% .9 white guys like you and me, right? And hardly any minorities, even though certainly in California, all the farm labor is done by immigrants, you know, mostly from Mexico and Central America, right? So those are big issues now that are emerging that uh, is beginning to, you know, fight for a part of the agenda. And so I've kind of helped organize a group of farmers. The, the sad thing is the farmers don't have time to serve on these committees to prepare these events because they're out there farming, trying to make a nickel, you know, so a few of us retired farmers and a few farmers that do have a little bit of time, we put our heads together to try to continue to interject good practical farming information into this agenda and kind of and fight for, you know, the importance and the primacy of that as well, even though there are many other places to learn how to farm organically now than just ecological farming conference. But uh, yeah, that's been something that uh, I'm somewhat dedicated to because that event and the people that attend that event gave me so much and probably saved my hide as a farmer over the years. Um, and so I just feel like it's important to give back, you know? Yeah. 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 No. And I, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of these things, conferences need to expand into how can you reach the farmer in a way that they can, because they are so busy, it's hard for them to come to things. You know, I think a lot of, uh, YouTube videos and, uh, information sharing. I see different organizations that have, uh, you know, like old fashioned list serves, but modernized list serves, yeah. post boards that, that work good for sharing the information on a timely yeah. basis. But yeah, you can't, can't forget some of the, why you started, right. And, and sure. make sure that people know how to produce food well, and, all and, of and those, survive as a farmer. All of those methods of education were, didn't exist, you know, 45 years ago when we right. started this thing. Right. And, I, and I'm still a proponent of getting together physically with people. That's the real sharing. That's the deep kind of sharing and the creating the way you can create community. Mm -hmm. um, so I still think that's very important. 
um, I know you can do everything. I know you can learn how to do anything on YouTube now. And so mm -hmm. you don't have to go anywhere or, right. talk, or really talk to, or engage with anybody. But and and that, that's one of the problems totally with young people. You yeah. know, I had awesome mentors, old people like myself now, who when I was first starting out, you know, they loaned me equipment. They loaned me their knowledge, their experience, their advice. I mean, I just practically worshiped the ground those guys walked on, farmers in my neighborhood who were so generous with me, you know. And I'm trying to do that now. I just basically hang out my shingle. I don't even try to make money off of people that want help. But honestly, I don't find any young people that are banging on my door hardly. I mean, here and there, I'm mostly in the service to my farming community, I'm still mostly working with farmers. They're almost my same age. They're more open to it and, and to me working with them experimentally and stuff like that than the young people. So I don't know. I guess they're picking it all up on YouTube. They don't need the geezers or, you know, <laughs> I, I do I do require a good lunch or a good dinner if I help somebody, okay, but okay. They, they probably don't want to even feed people. Well, well you heard it here. Um, old, old organic farming geezer uh, available for consulting services will work for food. Will work uh, for yeah, Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I'm about ready to stand on the freeway entrance with the sign. You know, We'll have your contact information, Tom, so you stay well fed. That's all I need. But uh, no, you know, I think that's something we do in our, even though we feel like we're so connected with all the social media and everything today, yeah. that true connection just isn't there. You know, knowing when you meet with somebody, you know how they tick, you know how they think, you can solve problems together. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's we're more connected, but more disconnected than ever. Right. And so I don't know if I would have done, this, I don't know if I would have done this podcast if I was in California with you, because I do my own radio sure. show. I've been doing it for about 20 years. Well, you Only, were, I was driving and so I require everybody to come into the studio because to me, that's how you, that's how you create chemistry sure. and connections between people, because then you, you get into cahoots with them on something else later on. So, there you go. And we're going to talk, talk to them over the dang telephone or the zoom. You don't really get that going. So, <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about some of those cahoots things we've, right. we've talked lately. Um, okay, so back to you, something else that you do to keep you out of trouble, mm -hmm. out of jail. Uh, CCOF, you're pretty involved with with that organization. California still. Certified Organic Farmers. Yes. Thank you. Uh -huh. Tell us about what you do there and some well, of the challenges you're running uh, into. Many decades ago, I was on their board of directors for a few years, and uh, now it's a pretty big organization, you mm -hmm. know. At that time, it was a kind of a fledgling organization. Now, CCOF is the largest organic certifier in the nation. They certify over 4,000 entities, uh, farms, processors, even retailers, and that sort of thing. So it's a big business. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when I retired as a farmer, um, I was approached by the president of the organization and asked if I would serve on this management committee for the certification services. So there's really three parts to the CCOF organization when it was really caused by the National Organic Program because all certifiers in the United States now, they're basically contractors to the USDA and they're accredited to do certification work for the USDA implementing the National Organic Rule. So that required a, uh, a separation from a farmer-led organization. Farmers used to be very involved in certifying their own neighbors, which some people would say, well, that's a conflict of interest. But on the other hand, you know what the heck's going on down the street, right? Mm -hmm. And your neighbor knows what the heck's going on on your farm and all that stuff. So 
it's not a bad idea for the neighbors to be involved because they kind of can know who's Buffalo and who and, and all that stuff. But that after NOP, that wasn't allowed. It was all basically a checklist. You know, did you do this? Yes, no, yes. It got all computerized and very dispersonalized. But anyhow, that's the system now. CCUAB does a good job of it. So um, I'm on a management committee and uh, I think we oversee... I don't know, something like 150 employees um, that work, you know, for CCOF. And then there's another 70 inspectors out in the field as well. So it's a big, big organization. So, it, uh, you know, I have, I'm trying to bring uh, perspectives in there. I think in certification, you can, you know, CCOF was involved in creating this whole thing. You know, they were present at the creation. They were making this whole thing happen. And now, once you get deeply involved in certification, you can't imagine how many audits an organization like CCOF has to have on an annual basis. You know, USDA, Mexico, you know, Canada, you know, all these different things. And now we're doing uh, uh, food safety certification as well. So anyhow, you can kind of get lost in the in the forest for the trees as far as the original mission. So we're taking a breather at our 50th anniversary to kind of look at where agriculture and organic has to go in the future, because I feel like agriculture is evolving and has to evolve very rapidly now as a response to climate change. And organic has to broaden its perspectives on its interface with the rest of agriculture if it's gonna remain relevant to what's going to be uh, agriculture in the future and our and our relationship to the regenerative movement okay which in to some extent is a criticism of organic having lost some of its mission and becoming very um legalistic so um i'm trying to play that role because you know i'm one of the old codgers and uh help bring back that sense of mission particularly around um uh, the area of the soil management practices on very, very large scale organic farms. You know, we have 20, 30,000 acre organic vegetable farms now in California. And probably that represents over 80% of anything organic that you find on a supermarket shelf across America is going to be coming from one of these very large farms. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, because of the ignorant, uh, understanding of what food safety comes from uh, of the really large buyers like uh, the Costco's and the Walmart's I can probably say that here right because they're not you know you know they're not sponsors of yours right um, <laughs> uh, they think that say food safety comes from a sterile environment well organic is all about living biology and the diversity of biology in in the the all of the living organisms in your soil and you know the filter strips and and the the, the insectary strips and you, you know you just you invite everybody to the table and you they figure out how they're going to coexist with each other you know we saw that on your farm today in in spades so um these big buyers are actually uh preventing the large organic vegetable farms from using things like compost, which is like 
that's like one of the Ten Commandments of organics is you use compost, at least when you're growing vegetables, not when you're maybe growing corn and soybeans on your farm because you can't afford it. Um, this is this is not good. So that's kind of one of my missions is uh, uh, looking for the scientific research out there that certainly exists, that demonstrates that, you know, intensive, uh, robust, di diverse biology on farms is actually creates an environment that is less, uh, less uh, open to the invasion from human pathogens. And if they do arrive there, they get ejected very quickly. So that science exists, but it's being ignored. And uh, so that's one of my projects I'm working on. Well, I appreciate that because we were working with some growers in Yuma, Arizona, mm -hmm. and we we're uh, wanting to do no-till practices, wanting to do cover crop integration mm -hmm. and and do organic uh, cabbage. Yeah. And it was by transplant, amazing crop. But uh, because it had residues, on the surface from uh cover crops it wouldn't pass food safety inspection mm -hmm. you know just because of decaying plant residues and and some of these things are need addressed yeah. i mean there's so how do you we'll try this you, out some some, to, some of these farmers okay are yeah. delivering to a large you know big box supermarket change produce and if it if they find a ladybug in it they reject it well what's your guarantee of organic other than a ladybug or a lacewing that's a predator that protected that crop against insect damage. Mm -hmm. And people should see that as a positive, but they'll actually reject produce mm -hmm. to find if you find a ladybug in it. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture, along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome. We provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So how does it happen? How do you get it done? Get what done? What go, I'm talking go, about right yes, now? Yes, to go back to the original intentionality of mm -hmm. organic. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've said not... this on other episodes. The original intention was, was this soil health-based, soil health mm -hmm. principle-based farming. Mm -hmm. And it's devolved to, in my opinion, um, a list of no's. Yeah. You can't do this, 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 this. It's not a list of what's best. It's a yeah. list of no. And, and and how do we how do we reinject those? Because I'm not so sure that organic is always the most nutrient dense product because a lot of times because of the, the nose, we can't yeah. maybe grow it in a nutritionally balanced way in mm -hmm. the soil. Yeah. Um now as far as residues from chemistries, yes, it's free from that. So that's that that's is our biggest selling point. That Honestly, that's benefit. that's the only thing we right? have to sell right now. And we better hang on to that part of it and do have that do very, that. very well because yeah. that is not insignificant. And we have to make sure that eating some food of these... without toxic residues is very but we also have important. to make sure there's been some fudgery on some of the things associated with uh organic approved products that even though they are organic in origin, they still have yeah. chemical toxicity to well, them. Well, you know, we had you we know. just had a huge, you know, maybe decade long 
issue of fraudulent organic grain There's coming from the, the the Eastern Europe by the shipload over here and going to organic operations, uh, often very, very large scale operations um, that went into organic animal agriculture. And it basically put the, the authentic organic grain farmers in America out of business mm -hmm. because they couldn't compete price-wise mm -hmm with this phony organic grain that was coming. Well, one government agency, I forget what it is, some auditing agency, finally figured that out. And I, I might be speaking erroneously, but from what I understand is that they actually embarrassed the USDA into cleaning this up. So they just adopted this big strengthening of enforcement rule now that's going to really tighten down on that but a lot of damage was done by that both to the organic grain producers uh in the united states and the the smaller family scale authentic organic dairies mm -hmm. who who refused to use that kind of grain and were buying grain from authentic producers in the united states and basically got out competed by a bunch of phony stuff so well, fraud, uh, but, but to get back to say fraud's going to happen, the but, fraud okay, happens yeah. uh, in any industry and it's, it's yeah, sad. And, and it has to be, and but, it has to be bird dogged and watched. How, how do we get the intention? You know, okay. So or back to the original intention of 50 so years ago. Here's my theory of how this happened. It, when, when a bunch of organic idealists helped write the national organic rule 30 years ago, it was to them, it was taken as a given that all of this good soil management was going to go along with organic. Because that was because just actually there weren't the proliferation of industrial organic inputs at that time to do fertility. The only thing we had at that time was basically cover crops and compost or manure. And nobody nobody envisioned that 30 years later we were going to have all of these. Blood meal, fish meal. Yeah, all uh, of these kind of inputs that could be used as substitutions for conventional inputs. And okay. that people practicing organic agriculture would elect to use those and ignore the compost and the cover crops. But sadly, that is what's happening. And so people like yourself in the regenerative movement are ringing our bell. And for a good reason, they're ringing our bell. And they're saying, look... We're growing the cover crops. We're growing the multi-species cover crops. We, in some cases, are using the compost. And we're even, you know, not tilling the soil, which 30 years ago, we didn't know it was a mortal sin. Now we know it is. Um, and they're saying, you organic guys, a bunch of you guys aren't even doing this stuff. And yeah, we're using, maybe we've reduced our chemical inputs by 80% herbicides, pesticides, even synthetic fertilizers, we might still be dependent on a little bit of this, but we're doing something valuable and important. So instead of these two communities throwing rocks at each other and saying, who's the most important or doing the right thing, we need to put this whole thing back, pulled, put it together. The organic community and the regenerative community have to come together mm -hmm. and create what is the next revolution in agriculture from my perspective. So um, it's like, you know, joining forces, not fighting against each other. So. Right, right. And so talk a little bit about, you know, the mortal sin, if you will, of tillage, as, as you said it. Um, 
you and I were talking, we said, we, we both agree that we know using synthetic chemistries for, for herbicides and, and those kind of things. We, we know there's in consequences to those. Yeah. And when we, those have been researched, it's, it's out there and those kind of things, but there's just kind of a general lack of understanding of the consequences of tillage. You know, That's... we know we lose carbon. We know we select for oh, more yeah. bacteria in the system. We know we yeah. destabilize aggregates. We we reduce water infiltration rates. We increase, you know, soil temperatures and plant stress and, mm -hmm. and evaporative loss, mm -hmm. all those things. But we've never really said that you don't see any, but any lawyer commercials saying, did your farmer till? You know, you're, you could be a settlement to $5 billion, but we, <laughs> we see it right for, did uh, your, did you work with glyphosate? Did you work with Paraquat? Uh, you know, we see those commercials constantly. Oh yeah. So I think that. that brings the awareness up, right. Uh -huh. On those chemistries. Yeah. But there's not that awareness of the damaging effects of tillage. And how do you balance the two? How do you get to the organic no-till system, right? That would be the penultimate. It's extraordinarily hard to do. I mean, mm -hmm. extraordinarily. How do we how do we get the well the the very best of both worlds in practice? I don't know. You know, tillage agriculture could be the ruination of the human race, honestly. I mean Well, I, it only it only did it in every other civilization before, well, right? <laughs> yeah, and irrigated agriculture as well is, right. is every civilization that is dependent on irrigated agriculture has been doomed. Um, but you know, we are employing about forty percent of the entire land surface of the planet now to produce food for humans. You know, now most of that is not an intensive intensive row crop agriculture. I forget what percentage is, but a lot of it is pasture and grazing. Or can um, it be? I mean, the arable land yeah. is what can be farmed is mostly being farmed. Maybe not to the best, but yeah, yeah. So you know, and we're trying to keep uh, eight going on 9 billion people fed on the planet. I try to remind people that agriculture is really a short-lived experiment. We've been doing it for 10, 12,000 years. Our species has been here for 250,000 years. And so it only represents 5% of our history. It is an experiment. And the outcome of the experiment is uncertain. And it may not be, be going in a great direction. I mean, with the kind of chemical intensive agriculture that we do, we can really boost yields and we can hold yields up. But partly, and I am observing that in the fields that I've been looking at here in central Illinois the last few days, that is at the expense of the intrinsic value and importance of soils. Like you dug a shovel full of soil on your farm couple hours ago and showed it to us and i said this is a five percent organic soil soil organic matter soil which was pretty obvious to me but some of these soils around here are you know i mean they're they're almost so light colored they're white and the color of soil is pretty good indication of the amount of organic matter in it. so we have been using up the organic matter in soils and in fact we put more carbon human beings put more carbon into the atmosphere from plowing soils than they did from burning fossil fuels and not all the way all that. the way up until 1955 or 1957 133 billion uh, 133 gigatons of carbon which is a gigaton is a billion tons okay so 
um, we need to put that back. Car soil is one of the biggest sinks of carbon and we need to pull it out of the atmosphere, get it back in the soil. That is why we have to get away from tillage. That's why we have to grow cover crops. That's why we have to intensify photosynthesis. And we have to focus on that both in organic, all of agriculture. I'm a lot more interested in the fate of agriculture in our species than I am and whether organic is more important than regenerative. It's all it's all immaterial as to whether we're going to survive doing agriculture because we don't have any choice now. We probably should have stayed hunter-gatherers, but we, we, we screwed up in the Garden of Eden. We went the other way. We got to figure out how to live on agriculture without destroying the natural systems that support its productivity. And that's a hard, it's a tough call. And I want to salute you because your company, California Ag Solutions in California, is doing a better job of that in the field than anybody I see out there. And that's why I like hanging around you guys, because you somehow or another, you can turn farmers' minds and get them to do crazy things that they wouldn't imagine of doing, like growing a 12, 15 don't, species don't covered tell crop them it's crazy, in an almond orchard, you know, in the winter. I mean, or, and then we put goats or bringing and goats and sheep in there to gray. I don't know how you guys do it, but... Shh. Don't tell them it's crazy. <laughs> These are my neighbors. These are hardcore conventional guys. And you guys are getting them to do this stuff. We just need to do this on a massive scale. And uh, I'm sorry that I'm not seeing more of it here in this part of the country, um, which I know is where the regenerative movement was born. We just got a huge task in front of us. And, and, and it's very, there's so few of us to farm anymore. You know, one or maybe 2% of the population and the rest of the population is totally dependent on us and make a lot of the choices about the, our access to the resources that we need to farm. But they're woefully ignorant of, of anything about agriculture, where their food comes from. And that's why I do my radio show and I try to do the educational efforts that I do because we all got to get a lot smarter and really improve our practices and we don't have much time so what you're saying is uh, uh don't worry about rearranging the decks on the chairs on the titanic right you know we, the titanic sinking we, we are yeah. thinking we need to yeah. do as much as we can as fast yeah. as we can okay now as far as uh i appreciate the compliment i think in a way they're calling us uh getting guys to do weird stuff but uh no i we gotta I, do weird I appreciate what, it. what what so, did we organic people do we were the weirdest people around okay 30 well, years ago so the the farm weird thing the good <laughs> the good part about that is um i think my, okay i have a theory that farmers want to do the right thing absolutely inherently. they're not out there trying to rape the environment what i think for, is to be bad guys but I think is they just, they don't know maybe what the next right thing is to do. Um, they well, are being told what the right thing is to do by A lot of them are barely hanging on by an economic thread anyhow. That's true. So they're afraid to upset any of the apple cart because. Yep. If yeah. I do something different, the banker won't, or the equipment dealer or, or whoever's financing me. Yeah. Won't, well, won't or keep know, it going. Yeah. yeah. Or, so, you know, the big challenge is, is really looking at what can you do next as a farmer you can tr control you okay we we can try to vote we can try to have influence yeah. on government but mm -hmm. what you can do right now today as a farmer is 
control what you do. You, you know? have the responsibility for some piece of land. Right. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the you know, stewardship of it. Looking yeah. at doing something a little bit different, just challenging yourself to what can I do next? Um, I've always thought that's that's what we need to help farmers do. Is well, just and, and that's what you teach are them in what are possibilities of what we can do. And so, you know, we haven't been around the whole farm yet, but, you know, we're essentially a lab of what on, at scale things you can do mm -hmm. with cover crops and planting and livestock. What is really brilliant of... is that you're leaving these little postage stamp pieces on your, your grazing farm to show what it would look like if we hadn't done what we're doing with these animals. And mm -hmm. that is really instructive. Wasn't it kind of interesting to see that difference? Oh I mean, my God, yeah. Night and day. And I hope I hope uh, the USDA people can come and have a look at that, you know? Yeah, and the sad part is because all the taxpayers are paying for yeah, that. Yeah, they're subsidizing. lack of nothing. Really know? bad yeah. management on this conservation reserve program lands. And yeah, um, oh, it's, it just- it Gives you a headache sometimes, people could doesn't it? have the tour that we had this morning on your Grateful Grazing Farm, it's an absolute eye-opener. It's just awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and plus we're going to enjoy dinner because, you know, like Tom says, he works for food. So we're feeding him tonight. So that, that, that's <laughs> and really a bunch, good. Along with a bunch of your customers, right? Exactly. So exactly. We're going to have a fun time. Yeah. Right. So let's, I want to talk a little bit on our time here together on a California-specific issue called SIGMA, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, where we've been tasked with the charge of not pumping out any more than goes into the aquifer so again it's more of this fighting over the deck chairs on the titanic oh boy. Um, especially in our county who gets what water where uh, madera county is an upland county if you will so there wasn't a whole lot of surface irrigation rights there because just the topography until the central valley project came in and we diverted mm -hmm. water yeah well because all the water to belonged the to this guy these yeah. guys named miller and lux i know who had a cattle empire in the valley that's that spread over a million acres. Yeah. And they had the rights to all the water. In fact, they owned my farm at mm -hmm. one time. And uh, so Madero Irrigation District tried to get going a couple of times and, Madero, and Miller and Lux put them out of business in court. And uh, actually the, the origins or the headwaters of the San Joaquin River which is the second biggest river in California next to the Sacramento mm -hmm. are in Madera. Madera County. Mm -hmm. And yet Madera County yep. has a minority share of that river at this moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately is farming about three times as many acres as you could with the Surface water, water that they have rights to right. in when, when there's no drought, you know, <laughs> It's it's tough, and yeah. so as a result, farmers all over the San Joaquin Valley um, have been always using the aquifer, which is probably one of the most awesome aquifers on the planet Earth, because the Central Valley in California used to be an inland sea, and so it was a big open basin that was part or connected to the Pacific Ocean at one time. And the Sierra Nevada right now that has this Yosemite National Park in it, it's not the original set of Sierra Nevadas. There was at least one previous set of Sierra Nevada mountains that over eons, million, we're talking millions of years, eroded down into what was this inland sea and filled it up with loose, what we call alluvium. So a lot of empty space in it. So 
we have all of these rivers coming out of the Sierra Nevada that used to flood the valley and all that water percolated into the water table. So it's an awesome aquifer. I think the the uh, water extracted for irrigation all over the country, I mean, Central Valley represents 20 or 25% of all the irrigation from, from groundwater in the country. So uh, we've always turned to that source whenever there wasn't enough uh, uh, water that we would get from the rivers or from the reservoirs to irrigate. And people who didn't even have access to river water or reservoir water would farm exclusively by just pumping. So mm -hmm. we pumped and pumped and pumped and pumped and we're getting near the bottom of the bathtub. <laughs> they finally yeah. figured out and somebody said, Ooh, we got to do something about this. You know, yeah. we're running out of water. So they passed this law back down, back in a previous drought to the one we just had. Um, and it's a slow process. They're talking about, you know, within 40 years, by the year 2040, you have to be completely in balance. You can't take any more out of the aquifer than what is put back into the aquifer. It's, you know, it's a shell game. Everybody's playing. Uh, I don't know. In the case of Madera County, it ain't, we can't wait until 2040 to balance right. the water table. Right. We're going to suck it dry before then by 2030, probably. And so I think we're definitely looking at losing at least half of the irrigated agriculture in Madera County, at least. Because even if you're in the Madera Irrigation District that has rights, on an average year, you only get one or two feet of water. Well, to grow almonds, it takes four feet of water. And to grow a lot of other things that takes at least three feet of water. So even in a, what we call a normal year, we're still honking on that water table. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. We didn't go to Madera for the good water. We knew it was a tough water place. For, in our case, fortunately, we were okay for 20 years, and, but mm -hmm. now we're retired. And one of the reasons that I did sell my land is because I could read the tea leaves and knew that we weren't going to have the water to farm after a while. So two things yeah. uh, we've worked on, and and one of the things just to jump into to give a little hope to people that we, that we just discussed, but one is you have to balance the water in the water out. Yeah. So normally you're not thinking about how do we get more water in. It's like, well, it just is what it is. Well, it depends rains, on the year yeah, and the whatever rain, it is. Basically rainfall. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have been talking about how do we farm with this, this limited amount of water we do? What does an almond orchard of the future look like? We've had some conference calls on and such. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned something to me earlier uh, here just on the way in of a researcher that's discovered uh, some different geological formations that may allow us to recharge these basins in a dramatic way way or in a, well, in a fast way talk a little bit about that and, and perk some ears and give some hope to some folks madera might be very lucky because we do have the san joaquin river it goes all the way to the top of the sierra and uh this gentleman that i ran into and had as a radio guest uh i don't know somewhat about a year ago a little over a year ago name is Graham Fogg. He's a hydrogeologist emeritus from the University of California, Davis. So this guy is a super nerd on water and groundwater. And uh, 
And so he and a graduate student some 20 or some years ago, uh, they were working on something down on the Kings River, uh, which is the next major river south of us, mm -hmm. the one that's flooding now and recreating uh, to Lake, lake. <laughs> uh, the Ghost Lake. Okay. So they were doing some hydrological work on there and somehow or another, they began to found evidence of really deep uh, layers of cobblestones and gravel um, that were just a few feet under the surface, maybe 10 feet un under 10, six or eight or 10 feet of soil. And that that cobble and gravel extended for like maybe a hundred feet deep. And so they, they, it was really hard work because they could only use well logs or bore their own holes. And they finally figured out that that there was an area that was two miles wide and 20 miles long. It was just like this under the surface of the ground. And what they figured out was that this was the ancient previous riverbed of the Kings River that was during the the end of the last ice age when all of these glaciers on the Sierra Nevada were melting and sending such immense volumes of water down the mountains and into the valley that they carved these deep valleys and that the violence of the water was bringing down these cobble and gravel and eventually that got filled in and now those these areas are popularly known as um, paleo valleys. So they were the ancient previous riverbed. And so San Joaquin River being one of the, being the second major river in the state of California is bound to have one of these. And we're hoping to hell it's in Madera County and not in Fresno County. And so we're working now to find this. Uh, Graham Fogg and a woman from Stanford University uh, talked the Department of Water Resources into flying these helicopters up and down the base of the Sierras, uh, penetrating the ground with these electromagnetic signals, uh, which they kind of use for oil explanation, and it can kind of tell them what the geology is like for about a thousand feet deep. And so they're mapping where these uh, um, paleo valleys are likely to be. So we're working, my friend Matt Angel, whom you know, who owns the Madera Pump Company, and I are kind of spearheading the effort in Madera on the, you know, in locally. Collaborating with these people at Davis and Stanford and Department of Water Resources and whatever, and trying to locate this Paleo Valley. So if we do, um, and we can turn it into a groundwater recharge facility, um, it's possible that during huge flood years like we have right now, uh, we could maybe turn half of the flow of the San Joaquin River into this Paleo Valley thing and recharge the the, the, the aquifer big time big time and because the whole challenge of this recharging aquifer thing is that you have such a massive volume of water in such a short period of time during these snow melts that it's really hard to get it in the ground fast enough before it runs off into the ocean and that's what we're struggling with right now and there's very few uh there's very few people that were ready for this opportunity that we have going on right now and are spreading water on farmlands but in those the, these paleo valleys could take the water anywhere from 50 to 100 times faster than uh, just regular farmland so 
it would be just an awesome thing if we could find and develop this one in Madera County. So that's one of the projects that I work on. Well, kind of I'm glad to see you're you're uh, staying active in retirement, or, or I guess yeah, you can't really because, call it you know, retirement. Honestly, you're, you're I'm glad harder. that I'm not having to make a living farming right okay. now. It's getting harder and more difficult. Um, we really kind of skimmed the cream off the organic yeah. uh, marketplace for our our time of farming. Well, and so, but I, I, agriculture is my passion. I just yeah. can't leave it going. So here I am visiting Mountie. <laughs> if I was still farming, I wouldn't be on your farm today, you know, and, but look what I would be missing. So, well, let's talk about the other thing we, we've been involved with. And it, and it goes to show a little bit of the, how change occurs, right? So we had a recent conference call that was put together to just find out, is there practices we could consider in almond orchards that uh, will adjust to the reality of Sigma? both mm -hmm. in district and out of district or in white areas. And uh, really, white areas, I was looking at- White areas, I think we already said, were places where- Places where well water only. They're well water yep. only, yeah. Yep. And uh, so we we were saying, uh, what do we do with existing orchards? Okay. What do we do Which with- Which are being torn out left and right now. Correct. Uh, how do we uh, adapt new planting orchards? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And could we really think bold and go to multi-species orchards- or the water savings that is known to exist in any yeah, you know, like plant a, species a, community. Yeah. That's just a fact, right? Sure. Why, yeah. why aren't we doing that in our, why does a field have to be all almonds and one all pistachios? Uh -huh. And, bear dirt, and right? bear dirt under yeah, that. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> we, you know. Um, really stretching the minds here. I know out of the, out of the conference, we, it just, it all stuck on current, current um, events. And it just was a little bit, um draining it's like nope can't well, do that we've done all the research nope that won't work but the neat we, part is we were, Tom ta knows we, we were talking to some oldsters there yeah we were talking to <laughs> oldsters uh but tom tom knows a guy and knows a guy and he he did some digging and we found just what we were hoping to a group that is actually mapping trees in other words looking at where every fruit or every nut is on the tree with satellite, like you do satellite it, imagery, like we used to do in cotton yeah. in the old days. Yes. You know, we yeah. used to they plant mapping that, and cotton. They took and that you, plant apart and put it back together. Yes. And, you would, yeah. you pull a cotton plant up mm -hmm. and look at, okay, well on the fifth node, we have three bowls in the first, second and fourth yeah. position. Yeah. You know, we right. had that all mapped yeah. out by hand uh -huh. and yet, there's 70,000 cotton plants per acre and we're doing this. And yet there's 130 trees per acre mm -hmm. and it's not been done. Mm -hmm. Well, so it has because we found has. this group at Davis, the same place, yep. younger people that were using satellite imagery and they were able to figure out some kind of a reading of this imagery to be able to predict the yield tree by tree to a 98% accuracy from these images, because I presume mm -hmm. that they did the imagery and then they went down and shook each tree and, and, and verified and it. Verified it. Yeah. yeah. And so. But you uh, can see tree to tree variants, you know, some trees yeah, perform fact, better than others. Or there's year there's year something variants. like 45% variance variants from, from tree, tree to tree, tree. Yeah. in this orchard. Well, on what kind of pattern, you know, that that is what need, that's what we want to look at. Um, because we drive by these orchards all the time and you see like the, the outside row of an orchard is sometimes just loaded. It is so loaded with, with almonds that the trees are 
the limbs are breaking or they have to put these props to hold the limbs up to keep them from breaking. And then you go a couple rows into the orchard and, oh, that's, you know, there's, there's, there's nuts, but not like that, you know? And so we're, we're scratching our heads. What the hell is that phenomenon? And it, we call it the edge phenomenon, right? So how do we create an edge effect throughout the field to get, because that outside row is getting just as much water as the neighboring row, maybe less. Correct. And it has more heat associated typically with the road or, you know, yeah. you know a bare ground. And Maybe more sunlight. Dust, yeah, but it's definitely got more sunlight. Yeah. So how do we... So you guys are guessing, could we skip and only have every other fourth row? Yes. And come up with maybe two-thirds of the yield mm -hmm. by having only half of the trees, mm -hmm. by, by but by juxtaposing them in different positions and different... That's pretty, yeah, you kind of, you guys kind of blew my mind that you were even thinking along those lines. Or if we could do a community effect where you'd have maybe annuals with shorter statured vines mm -hmm. or, or blueberries or something with medium statured almond uh -huh. and high yeah, canopy yeah. walnut. And I realize it'll take robots, uh, robotic automation to harvest those individually, uh -huh. right? But creating like these yeah. growth clusters yeah. for sharing of water, sharing of mm -hmm. energy we're farming a winter them. crop, you know, a winter yeah. crop in between we're, the trees that would setting make up for the, the fewer yeah. almond harvest or, and because winter crops don't use hardly any water. Right. That has been one of the uphill climbs of getting people in the San Joaquin Valley to use cover crops. Oh, I can't spare a drop of water. We can't grow a cover crop. But our friend Jeff Mitchell mm -hmm. and Amelie Gaudin and a couple of other researchers from the University of California, I think they studied 10 almond farms uh, in, in the valley over a three or four year period and measured, they put in cover crops and they measured exactly the amount of water that it took to establish them and how much water they were using every day all the way through the, so they, they figured out that if you establish a cover crop in from November to March or from late October to uh, maybe first of April, the cover crop will not use any net water um, over not having a cover crop. And, and net and, water is, it took some water to grow it. Yeah, you might have put a few inches on, saves but through the hot. when you get a rain, the okay. amount of water that infiltrates into the soil effectively mm -hmm. um, makes up for a bit of water that you start, that might have otherwise run off into mm -hmm. the ditch, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, they've demonstrated that cover crops well done do not use more water, um, but that's really hard to get that message to farmers. In fact, it was really hard to get that message to Sigma boards because Sigma boards were actually starting to create rules to prevent the growing of cover crops in winter because they use water, right? And so Mitchell and these other people had to go around to their meetings and give presentations showing their the, the the results of their research and trying to turn that the other way. I mean, it is so hard to educate people. I don't know how you guys do it, but you do it pretty effectively at uh, Calag Solutions. Uh, it, yeah, it's just, there's so many of the beliefs that we have that the truth is the exact opposite of what we believe. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about just about a whole lot of things. Yeah. yeah. And so you were mentioning before, whether it's a boon or a bust, 
to have a, to try to farm without the help of a previous generation who owned equipment and land. Okay, well, the equipment and land is very helpful, but the thoughts and the guidance and the systems that they want you to perpetuate are sometimes not the correct thing. And so if you start with nothing, you also don't start with any prejudices of anybody else's farming system. You're free to try any wacko, crazy thing that you can imagine, which we all did as organic farmers 30, 40 years ago. And a few of us made it and proved that we can farm and grow crops based on natural systems and intensive biology that are pretty damn good, you know, pretty decent, yield, pretty, pretty good yields and very high quality if you use the right practices. And uh, if I'd had the so-called help of my family farm, I may not have ever been able to do that because my dad would have been looking over my shoulder and said, no, you ain't gonna risk my land. You ain't gonna risk my money doing that kind of stuff, you know? So it's a help and a hindrance. So, sure, absolutely. Uh, well, moving forward, you got, um, we have to really, it sounds like we just really need to save ourselves from ourselves. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because and, and we're, not, we're not, doing things that are opposite of what we think. We we think what we're doing is right, but it's really in many times the opposite of what is right. It, it can be, but I mean, we're not, and, and that's not to condemn all farmers out there. And oh, say no, no, all, I, and that's not know, just in agriculture. Ignorant and doing the wrong thing. Um, we do the yeah. same thing in medicine. Yes. Um, nutrition. I mean, all sorts of things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We're a very successful species, but we may be too successful for our own good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I certainly appreciate you spending time with us. What? Today. You mean we used and up an hour already? No, is that crazy? Oh, wow. Well, I know. Can we buy another one? We probably can, but I'll have to pay you double again. Uh, Maybe I'll you pay know. you the next time. Oh, okay, there you go. I'll let you come on my show again. And well, then if I come work. to Fresno, I get lunch? Yeah, you get lunch, and, and but you got to do a show for me. No, yeah, that, too. That, that's yeah. awesome. We just didn't, we that. didn't get through it all today here. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of challenges in the future, and I I really appreciate the leadership that you're continuing to be engaged in and and providing for you know the next generation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really needed. So we do have to leave a hopeful message, and so I ascribe to uh, our now retired Governor Jerry Brown's. Uh, perspective on things this is pessimism of the mind optimism of the heart okay very good and uh i um i didn't know that he had said that so that's good and it's something to something to consider because we can we can't always look at what's bad all the time but we no, do have to be pulled out for it, what's it, hopeful it, it eats you up yep absolutely <laughs> you can't do that you have to constantly work continue to work for the good and be hopeful but be also be well well informed. So I think we're a little better informed now today, Tom. Well, I hope if we informed anybody about anything that they didn't know before, we're grateful for it, aren't we? And remember, if you want more information, uh, Tom will work for lunch. So oh, reach yeah. out to him. And and uh, if you're interested in any touch. of my competing radio shows with uh, whatever this one is called, <laughs> uh, you can go on tdwillyfarms.com and you can listen to any of my radio shows. And you That's might right. even listen to Monty being interviewed by this guy. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we'll have that in the show notes so you guys can link to that. Uh, we really appreciate it, tdwillyfarms.com. And uh, thank you for all that you've, you've done 
for the agriculture community and, and, you know, Madera County and, and everyone that you come in contact with. It's been my honor because I'm only only paying back the people that gave me so much. Awesome. Appreciate it, Tom. Okay. Take care. Good evening. Thanks for listening. What a powerful discussion about examining our current situations, evaluating existing practices, and seeking out opportunities for improving the way we do things. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there, you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.